Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. Tom Tilly with you. In this episode's briefing, we have the finale of Antoinette's three-part series on gut health. And I reckon this is probably the most interesting because it looks at the link between mental health and gut health. 90% of serotonin, for instance, we know that serotonin is involved in the um, process of, of probably of, of depression and, and autism and other diseases. Uh, so 90% of serotonin is actually produced in the gut. That is something I did not know before. And there's so much more to learn about gut health and the way it affects our mental health. That is in the second half of this podcast. First, here are today's headlines with Rihanna Patrick. It's the 4th of November. This news won't surprise anyone that's been hacked, but cybercrime is surging in Australia and the latest stats show that there's been a 13% increase in the last financial year. So the Australian Cybersecurity Centre has released this data. Uh, It shows they've received 76,000 cybercrime reports. And that's only a fraction of the real number because so many of these attacks go unreported. Um, They say that ransomware incidents are also up 75%. So that's essentially dodgy software that blocks your computer until you pay money to have it unblocked. Yeah, and the report comes after Optus and Medibank hacks have affected nearly half of Australians. Yeah, and I guess this report just sort of confirms what we already know, that it's on the rise and it's it's here to stay. This is part of our lives, that we need to be so much more aware of our data, who we're giving it to, where it's stored and how it can be used against us. Floods are still wreaking havoc in regional New South Wales. Police divers discovered the body of a man in the southern Tablelands yesterday and they're still searching for his mate, who was also on the back of a truck when it was swept away by floodwaters on Monday. So Wagga Wagga, Forbes and Gunnedah are still experiencing major flooding. The Murrumbidgee near Wagga has exceeded the major flood level and could rise more today. And some residents in the north of the town were told to evacuate last night or be cut off for days. And the Lachlan in Forbes is higher than it's been in 70 years. The founder of Hillsong, Brian Houston, has given a live stream hitting out at the board of his church, saying they squeezed him out and poured shame and humiliation on him. Yeah, so Brian Houston resigned as the global senior pastor of Hillsong in March. And then yesterday he came out and accused the board of forcing him out by releasing information about two of his misdemeanours. In the statements and announcements made... There was enough detail to pour ultimate shame and humiliation on me, but enough ambiguity to leave people to make their own conclusions about what did or didn't happen. Frankly, in many cases, those conclusions are wrong. So that's Houston speaking on his 15-minute Facebook Live yesterday morning. Uh, I watched it because I'm very interested in this story, and there's a lot going on here. So what he's talking about is the moment in March where Hillsong's board apologised to its congregation and told them about an internal probe um, into two incidents of serious concern involving Houston, one in 2019 when he reportedly went into the hotel room of a female staff member whilst under the influence of anti-anxiety medication and alcohol, and another incident a decade earlier involving inappropriate text messages to a female staff member. He's now saying that the board forced his hand because before that moment, they'd asked him to step aside as chairman and then as a board member because of the big criminal court case he's got coming up where he'll fight charges of concealing child sexual abuse by his father. So once he was no longer chairman or a board member, he's saying the leadership then released that info, which gave him no choice but to resign. And then they sacked his wife, Bobby Houston, as well. 
But the interesting thing around about his statement yesterday was that he didn't then clear up any of that ambiguity. He just took a swipe at the board and clarified two relatively minor points that he's not an alcoholic and that he hasn't been dependent on sleeping tablets for 10 years. But there is still so much we don't know about those actual incidents. Reports of online child exploitation to the Australian Federal Police have more than doubled in four years. The escalating problem of websites trading in illegal material is now under investigation with specialist units from around the world. What a controlled operation allows us to do is to commit activity that otherwise would be criminal in its nature. So that's the head of Queensland's task force, Argos, Detective Inspector John Rouse. Um, He's speaking there on a listener podcast called The Children in the Pictures, and this is a new docuseries podcast. It was released yesterday. Um, It's a really interesting look at the work being done to stop the trade of this illegal material online. Just an incredible investigation. So check out that podcast, The Children in Pictures, available on your normal podcast app, Apple, Spotify, whichever podcast that we use, or the listener app. Pakistan's former Prime Minister and cricket legend Imran Khan has been shot in an assassination attempt. Khan was on top of a vehicle leading a protest march demanding a snap election when a gunman opened fire. Other people on the vehicle surrounded him and tried to shield him, um, but they managed to shoot him in the leg. Four others were wounded in the attack. One of them is reported to have died, but Imran Khan has survived and is now recovering in hospital and a man has been arrested. Coming up next, Antoinette's part three on her look at gut health. In our first two episodes of the Gut Instinct series, we've explored the growing evidence that suggests the gut really is our second brain. So much of what happens in the gut impacts diseases traditionally linked to the brain. We've also examined the booming multi-billion dollar probiotics and kombucha industries and found, well, they have little or limited effect. So what other ways can we treat the mind via our guts? Around a third of GPs now identify as integrative doctors. That's basically where East meets West in response to illness and disease. Dr. William Barnes is an integrative GP and a functional medicine doctor based in Perth. Dr. William Barnes, thanks for your time. And your title is pretty long and maybe confusing for some, um, because if you do functional medicine, does that suggest that the rest do some sort of dysfunctional medicine? (laughs) No. (laughs) Um, Really what we're looking at is a process of looking at more of the underlying uh, aspects of illness where we're looking at probably you'd say more a microbiological and a biochemical uh, related approach to disease rather than looking at it from a pathological approach to disease. Probably the names are a little bit a little bit confusing but really what we're trying to do is look at the the uh, nutritional, the biochemical and the microbiological function related uh, to a particular person's symptoms and their disease state. And how does that differ from a regular GP at your, you know, up the road at your local medical centre? Generally, it probably shouldn't, but uh, I would say that we probably um, spend a lot more time looking at, um, looking at the underlying microbiological. So, for instance, if somebody comes to me, I will probably take 
a lot more time. So we will put aside time to, to go into all of the aspects of a person's illness. And then we will work with what you'd call more functional testing. Uh, we do um, a gut microbiome, which looks at the uh, gut organism as a whole, looking at the ecology of the gut. So we would spend more time looking into uh, how diet had affected that person, what their gut biome was like, where the imbalances were. We'd look for um, outgrowths of, of certain bacteria, yeasts, parasites. We would work on the basis of working with that person with, with both um, medications, herbs and um, probiotics. Uh, then we'd probably do more uh, testing and look at it from a biochemical point of view. We, we do um, a urine analysis where we, we would analyse urine looking for enzyme function. Um, in the body, we'd look at vitamin mineral deficiencies associated with enzyme pathways that weren't working properly. So I guess it's a uh, much more extensive and usually in general practice, which I do as well, uh, we don't have the opportunity um, and we don't have the time to be able to look into these sorts of areas. And in this series so far, we've already explored the gut-brain axis and its implications on a range of diseases and conditions. But let's talk mental health specifically. How connected are the two, in your opinion? If you start to look at the research that's um, uh, that's happening now, more and more people are talking about the gut as the second brain. For instance, what is produced in the gut in terms of nutrients and, and hormones is going to directly affect the rest of the body. 90% of serotonin, for instance, we know that serotonin is involved in the um, process of, of probably of, of depression and, and autism and other diseases. Uh, so 90% of serotonin is actually produced in the gut from tryptophan. So it's not being produced in the brain, it's being produced in the gut. And the connection between the um, levels of serotonin and other nutrients produced in the gut has probably a large effect on brain function. Um, these serotonin levels may well be associated with what we eat and the microbiological uh, makeup of our digestive system. So understanding and, and helping to, I guess, normalise or equalise a person's digestive system in their eating may have a major impact on their neurotransmitter levels in their brain. A healthy biome in the gut will have an impact on neurological function and psychiatric function. So if someone presents to you with, say, anxiety and depression symptoms or other mental health conditions, traditionally the next steps are, you know, you get a mental health plan with a psychologist, possibly for more acute cases and conditions, a referral to a psychiatrist. What's, what's the sort of steps you take? Uh, well, I would, I would go through a similar process to what any medical practitioner would, would go through. I would do a mental health assessment. I would say, well, okay, look, there's three approaches that you can take in this particular situation. The first one would be looking at them from a mental health perspective and, and the risks are associated or where they were, what their level of support was, uh, what they required, uh, whether they had a mental health care plan, whether they had a mental health psychologist or what have you to, and, and whether they were working with that. Uh, in the main, people coming to me would already have started in that process. So 
um, I would encourage uh, people to continue in that process. The second question would be coming down to medication and whether they would require it. Now, not everybody with a mental health problem would be requiring medication. So uh, we would discuss what medication they're on, their needs, whether they wanted that. And then we would start to work on the functional aspect of it and um, because I would see that as a longer-term process. I, it's not something that I can immediately um, create an intervention mm. with. To do a workup from a functional medicine point of view would take a couple of months uh, to get our information back. So then we would gradually, subtly start to work with the person in terms of their functional medicine, uh, altering their diet, starting to work with nutrients if we're required, looking at probiotics. We'd also be looking at lifestyle, exercise, uh, relationships. So I guess it's just an add-on. It's not saying you mm. do anything really different. You would, you would actually add that in as a part of the overall uh, psychological help that you provide for the patient. And a few years ago, you got into a little bit of trouble with the Medical Board of Australia, who said they were cracking down on what they called unconventional medicines or remedies. And this wasn't a, a mental health uh, patient, but a cancer one, and there were alternative therapies involved. Do you believe that this area of medicine is unconventional and not evidence-based? Well, you can, you can look at the level of, of uh, research that's going into this area. I guess it's, it's an emerging area. So from the point of view of where you say, what you say with regard to evidence, what's, what's substantiated. But the evidence is being produced. It's being um, done within laboratory setting and it, this information is becoming available. I don't work on the basis of information that hasn't been uh, written, reported and, and described within the literature. I consider that this approach is one that will be become more mainstream, uh, more approachable, more, more people will do it over time. But uh, it's something that's driven by the scientific research, not by a fad or, or, or anything else. The evidence is coming and it, it's coming fast. And if you look at the last five years, you'll see an enormous amount of explosion of this information. A little bit of disclosure from me. I have been through um, the integrative health GP approach. I live with an autoimmune disease uh, and a mental illness that I, that I manage. I've had the stool tests, the urine tests, the supplements. I've done it all in an attempt to, to have a more holistic approach to my health treatment. It is really expensive even something like getting a stool sample tested. Why don't you think these things are covered? I've had that many sorts of blood tests I, don't even, I can't even keep count of. Many aren't covered on the PBS or there's no rebate. Why do you think that is? I guess because it is an area that is still being defined. I mean, I work in general practice and I also work within functional medicine and I understand exactly what you're saying with regard to cost. When we do an organic acid test, we, we don't do it in Australia. There's no lab that's set up to do it here. We have to send it to America. We're looking at a large amount of data that, that we're producing, over 70 different um, enzyme reactions, and that's what we're, we're working from. So I guess the database is huge. But if you were to think about it in relation to how much a, a, a CT would cost, I mean, a CT costs $400, but you don't have to actually have to pay for that. If you go for an MRI, mm. you would, and that will give you a certain amount of information as well. Tests are expensive. Why aren't they more of them available? Because at some level, they have to be accepted by the wider body of medicine um, before the PBS will actually, or the uh, Medicare will, will provide them. 
Does that run the risk of potentially exploiting people who are desperate for answers? Like when you're quite unwell, um, especially with mental illness um, and family and friends are trying to throw everything at your at the solution, does it run the risk of, you know, costing people a lot of money and potentially not providing any solutions? I think the, the first thing is that there's always an opportunity to exploit. And that's where you have to be very clear and discuss it very clearly with your patient that this is the direction that they want to go. One of the things that I I know is there's certain things that I can find out about people having done functional medicine. I can now look at blood tests and be much more accurate about what I can see within them. So there are opportunities to see things. You can know things about a patient in terms of their history and you can know things by looking at their general blood counts and you can monitor them by by monitoring their blood tests as well. So it's an overall approach. It's not just that I can't see you if I don't have those tests done. It would be more help to me if I had those tests done. But if I'm a practitioner that actually is, is there and I, I work within all stratas of the socioeconomic area, I try to help people in every area with what's available and what they can actually access for themselves. But there's a lot of people who come to you who actually want those tests. They have done research on them. They know they can, they've, they've looked into it and they want to do those tests and quite a few people come with them already done. What they want from mm. you is not that you're going to do the test for them. What they want from you is somebody who can sit down and actually understand the test and actually give them an understanding of what their health issues are and then actually work from there with them on where they need to go forward. It is a juggling act. I, I agree with that. That's the problem that we have in all in medicine all the time. We're always thinking about the cost-benefit to a patient as to what, what they should do and what access they have to various things. That was Dr William Barnes, an integrative GP and functional medicine doctor based in Perth. And that brings us to the end of our three-part Gut Instinct series. And I'll be watching closely as more research is published in coming years. And it's adding to the growing mountain of evidence that's already there. But I do wonder how long it will take before policy catches up. Like when will the pharmaceutical benefit scheme and, and Medicare start subsidising these tests and treatments? And then crucially, when will medical degrees actually incorporate integrative approaches to their baseline training? All right. Thank you so much for that three-part series on gut health, Antoinette. Um, Hope you've enjoyed listening to it. The weekend briefing will be in your feed tomorrow morning. Jamila Rizvi, who are you speaking to this week? I am absolutely delighted that this weekend I have had the opportunity to sit down with Teela Reid. Now, hers might not be a name that you have heard of, but believe me, it's a name you need to know. She's a proud Wiradjuri and Wailwan woman. She's a lawyer and a storyteller. And she's also one of the youngest people who was involved in the constitutional dialogue process that culminated in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. You guys already know that we're going to be voting as part of a referendum soon on the question of a First Nations voice to Parliament. And if that's something you're interested in knowing more about but kind of don't understand, Teela has got the goods. Our conversation covers everything from kinship to oral history to colonisation to healing, treaty and more. I really urge every single one of you to listen. 
All right, that's your weekend briefing, an interview with Teela Reid by Jamila Rizvi. A big thank you to our team, executive producer Eleanor Harrison Dengate, Keegan Brown on the panelling, socials producers Sarah Boll, Poppy Manzi, and our editor Matt Kuzkari and producer Brooke Lowther. Hope you have an amazing weekend. Thank you so much for listening. Tell your friends about the briefing and we'll catch you Monday. Listener.